Welcome to Double Truck Stories, the home to some of the best features, investigations, and character portraits from across ESPN. I'm Mike Philbrick, your host for the Double Truck Stories podcast. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. When you hear stories about a sports legend, it tends to evoke tales of iconic moments from games that are the gold standard for their generation. Because that's how we celebrate these legends, with stories of titles won and memories shared. But with LeBron James, his legend is deeper than the championship banners hanging from the rafters. It's deeper than the hardware he has in his home, and it's even deeper than the court itself. Because in order to tell the story of LeBron James and his NBA journey, you have to go beyond all that. You have to have lunch with Moses Malone. You have to crash President Obama's schedule and even hop on your bike in South Beach. But the best part of all, this is a story that's not even over yet. Stick around after the story for my conversation with ESPN senior writer Dave McMenamin as we talk about how a cultural icon is able to redefine the definition of being just that. Now we present LeBron James' NBA story can't be told without these 13 moments by Dave McMenamin and Brian Winhorst. LeBron James's NBA story can't be told without these 13 moments by Dave McMenamin and Brian Windhorst. Thirteen times in his NBA career, LeBron James has reached the postseason. And when the story of his career is told, it'll likely begin with the many memorable moments he has created during those 13 trips. Eight NBA Finals appearances, including seven consecutive, three championships, three Finals MVP awards, a triple-double average in the Finals. The list goes on and on. But there are other moments, some you might not know about, and some you might have forgotten, that help shape LeBron's story, stretching all the way back to the days after he was drafted, right through fashioning the greatest Finals comeback in NBA history. If you're not familiar with these 13 moments, then you're not getting the true, full story of the career of LeBron James. The First Summer of LeBron Summer League wasn't yet a big event in 2003, but that year at the Pepsi Pro Summer League in Orlando, games were moved from a private gym to TD Waterhouse Center to allow 13,000 fans to catch a glimpse of James playing a meaningless game in an NBA practice jersey for the first time. Outside the arena, fans swarmed the Cleveland Cavaliers as they arrived in a fleet of SUVs. According to longtime team communications director Tad Carper, it was a playoff-like atmosphere. You couldn't see who was inside the SUVs, and fans were tapping on the window and trying to scalp the tickets, Carper said. A week later, at the Reebok Pro Summer League, the Cavs wised up and chartered a bus to take them to the tiny 3,000-seat Clark Athletic Center on UMass Boston's campus. Summer League organizers arranged for makeshift parking in what Carper remembers as a mixed dirt and gravel lot, which was supposed to be secure from fans who had also parked there. It wasn't. Several fans hid in the lot by laying on the ground underneath their cars. When the Cavs piled off the bus, the fans rolled out into plain sight, hoping to get an autograph or a picture with James, who was unfazed. I mean, to be honest, man, I had got so much in high school, it wasn't something that was surprising to me or something that I haven't seen before, James said. I mean, everywhere we went in high school, man, there was people outside our rooms, whether we was in a motel or a hotel or a Holiday Inn. People was there trying to figure out what the hype was all about. I had seen it so much in high school throughout those last three years that when I got to the NBA, it was like, okay. Lunch with a legend. 
Before rookie James launched off his left foot and cocked the ball back in his right arm to throw down an instantly iconic dunk in Sacramento, he dug into some chicken fettuccine at the team hotel. It was his last lunch before a legendary run that would include multiple championships and MVP awards, and he was breaking bread with someone who had a couple rings and MVPs of his own, Moses Malone. The Hall of Famer who connected with James through a Nike commercial shoot visited the 19-year-old's hotel room, shared stories about life in the NBA, and offered up advice. It was just about hard work and dedication, James said of Malone's message. Whatever you give to the game, the game will give back to you. That was already in my head, but when you hear it from someone who had accomplished so much, it resonates even more. Malone, whom James would affectionately refer to as Uncle Mo, was one of the rare greats of the game to embrace him from the very start. His gesture meant the world to James as he transitioned to the pro game. Just the simple fact that he was there, James said, just sounded very genuine. I appreciate that day. That was kind of like the beginning of the journey. Sitting in that room and sitting around with him and sitting with my loved ones. That was the beginning of the journey. A Comforting Conversation On an off day in March 2009, James drove two hours to Columbus to attend a high school championship game featuring his alma mater, St. Vincent St. Mary, and Thurgood Marshall, a high school in Dayton. It was a hotly contested game with James's school ultimately winning by six. But Thurgood Marshall's Jawan Staten, a spark-plug junior guard at the time, scored 28 points in defeat. In the moments after the final buzzer, Staten broke down in exhaustion and grief, holding his head in his hands as he started to cry. He felt someone hug him and started to speak to him. James grabbed me close. He told me that he lost the state final his junior year. He told me I was a special player and to keep my head up, said Staten, who later went on to play at West Virginia. He told me to remember the moment for the rest of my life. He told me to let that drive me for the rest of my life, never to feel like that again. Those were wise words, and I've tried to live by them. The moment created a remarkable photo, James comforting and offering advice to a teenager in a devastating moment. It's just who I am, I guess. It's not like it was planned. Obviously, I just recognized the kid had a lot of talent. He played his heart out against our high school, and he wanted to win that game just as bad as, you know, probably living, James said. And I mean, he was just crying, like a disaster, you know? I've been there. I was in my junior year. I just wanted to try to give my words of encouragement in any way I could. The President and the King James has been to the White House for three formal occasions, when President Barack Obama honored his championship teams in 2012, 2013, and 2016. But it was the non-official times when James visited that were the most fun for him. In 2009, James was in nearby Silver Spring, Maryland, for the premiere of a documentary he produced about his high school years, More Than a Game. He made a surprise visit to the White House, despite not being on Obama's official schedule for the day. James and friends Rich Paul, Maverick Carter, and Randy Mims got a tour of the West Wing and met with Obama in the Oval Office. Obama even made visiting Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi wait a few minutes for a scheduled meeting. A year later, a few weeks after he signed with the Miami Heat, James returned to the White House as part of what ended up being a historic pickup game to celebrate Obama's 49th birthday. 
Among those who took part were Kobe Bryant, Grant Hill, Carmelo Anthony, Chauncey Billups, Magic Johnson, Alonzo Mourning, Chris Paul, Derrick Rose, Bill Russell, Dwayne Wade, and David West. Fantasy, but still not reality. James's feature film debut came in 2015's Trainwreck, and he has long been rumored to be involved in a Space Jam sequel. But there's another saga that predates both of those, a decade-old idea to have James star in a movie about a fantasy basketball camp. In 2009, after he'd gotten some attention for playing four different versions of himself in Nike ads, James started a project about an adult fantasy basketball camp set in Las Vegas. The script, from established screenwriters Lowell Gans and Babalu Mandel, was to be produced by Brian Grazer. It was scheduled to film in 2010, and director Malcolm Lee spent time with James during the 2009-2010 season. But after the decision, pre-production stopped. The project stayed dormant for three years. In 2013, Kevin Hart agreed to co-star with James. The movie had a new name, Ballers, and a new setting, Miami, where James had just won two titles with the Heat. Hart was set to play James's less talented brother. But James left Miami a year later, and the project never got off the ground. After Trainwreck, momentum returned. In 2016, Mark Wahlberg announced on The Tonight Show that he was going to star in a fantasy camp movie with James, and it would be written by Doug Elan, the creator of Entourage. Nothing has happened with the concept since. Will it ever get made? There's still the hope, and the idea is still out there, James said. Kevin Hart is, well, you can't stop him. The route that he's on right now, he has no time to be stopping and waiting. He's got to stay on that wave. So, you know, we'll see what happens. Hanging up number 23, Everywhere. Michael Jordan has attended only a few dozen of James's games over the years, but when he sat courtside for one game in Miami in November 2009, James seemed overwhelmed with emotion. As he was walking off the floor, he whispered to TNT's Craig Sager that he was going to dump his number 23 to honor Jordan. After the game, he doubled down and suggested that the entire league retire Jordan's number. In Miami, Jordan's number 23 is retired and hangs on a wall on the side of the arena. That night, Jordan sat next to Heat President Pat Riley, who had the idea to honor Jordan even though he never played for Miami. He's the best basketball player we've ever seen, James said that night. If you see 23, you think about Michael Jordan. You see guys flying through the air. You think about Michael Jordan. You see game-winning shots. You think about Michael Jordan. You see fly kicks. You think about Michael Jordan. He did so much. It has to be recognized, and not just by putting him in the Hall of Fame. A few weeks later, James filed paperwork to change his number for the following season. When he signed with the Heat and switched to number 6, there were some conspiracy theories that James knew he'd be going to Miami, and that's why he brought up the number change. James denied that was true, noting he would have had to change his number if he signed in Chicago, where it is also retired for Jordan. After wearing number 6 for four years in Miami, James switched back to number 23 when he returned to Cleveland. An Early Meeting with a Future Rival in July 2010, after three days of free agency meetings with six different teams that were monitored by media and fans like a congressional hearing, James pondered his future at his annual Nike basketball camp at the University of Akron. 
The camp was for elite high school players, but also featured some of the nation's top college players serving as counselors. They drew the attention of scouts playing pickup games that often turned into a who's who of future lottery talent. On the second day of the camp, with the whole basketball world hanging on his free agency decision, James, joined by Chris Paul, showed up in workout clothes ready to play. Joined by a couple of James's Cavs teammates, they took on a team that featured Dayton's Chris Wright, Georgetown's Vernon Macklin, Butler's Shelvin Mack, Duke's Kyle Singler, and a rising junior sharpshooter from Washington State named Clay Thompson. Yes, the first time Thompson faced James and Paul was on a side court in Akron, Ohio. You never know who you're going to cross paths with, James said, recalling the game. That's why, for me personally, I've always been kind to the younger generation and the kids in high school, the kids in college, the kids growing up. I would never want a story to come out about me and them say, "Man, when I was in the tenth grade, man, I went up to LeBron and he told me you ain't never going to make it." And now, you know, that's whack for me to kill a kid's dream before it started. That's whack to me. Thompson hit a few long jumpers, and Mac wasn't intimidated going up against Paul. Who was recovering from injury? James and Paul won, but it was respectable, and just the beginning. Taking his two-wheeler to South Beach, when James first joined the Miami Heat, there were few figures more reviled in professional sports. Overnight, he went from celebrated in the only home he'd ever known in Northeast Ohio, to perceived as disloyal and afraid of competition by joining up with the super team in South Beach. With his life uprooted, something to prove, and plenty of vitriol to escape, James took up a new pastime: bike riding. Being in Miami, it's all about just trying to have a mental edge, James said, and at the same time, being able to have just a freedom, which is very rare in my life. Longtime friend Randy Mims fashioned stereo speakers on his bike so he could blast music when James and the gang crashed critical mass. A street cycling event held on the last Friday of every month, when hundreds of bike riders find the route posted online at the last minute and pedal around Miami together. By the time other bikers realized who was in their presence, James and company had usually already zipped past them. The practice later inspired both a Nike commercial and James's charitable initiative, Wheels for Education, in which he doled out thousands of bikes, helmets, and other gear to children who completed a learning enrichment camp that he sponsored. To be able to just have some freedom, James said, looking back, and just feel like I was at peace and smell the fresh air and things of that nature, and also have a mental edge saying, "Listen, we're going to use this as conditioning. We're going to use this as a way to get to work." If I could do this and still go out and play and dominate, it was more of a mental edge for me. The night Miami ended in sanity. At the shoot-around before a game in Miami in February 2012, James and Wade got into an argument about strategy for that night's game against the New York Knicks. Both badly wanted to guard and shut down Jeremy Lin, who had taken the league by storm. The cards were stacked against Lynn. It was his fourth game in five nights, and the Knicks had a tough back-to-back, flying in from New York after beating the Atlanta Hawks the night before. It was the culmination of a historic 11-game stretch that made up Lynn's sanity, during which he averaged 23.9 points and 9.2 assists, and had some breathtaking finishes. Ten days earlier, the Heat had laughed and celebrated when Lynn hit a game winner in Toronto. 
with some of the players staying in the locker room in Indianapolis to watch after their win that night. But by that February night in Miami, they were sick of it and wanted to prove a point. The Heat smothered Lynn in traps and shoved him around, and Lynn quickly unraveled. He ended up shooting one for 11 with eight turnovers, and the Heat won by 14 points. James used his size advantage to push Lynn far away from the basket and from teammates. He plucked away five steals of his own and harassed Lynn into several other miserable mistakes that unleashed the Heat's fast break. Later, the New York Times reported that President Obama was so impressed with the performance that he used it as a metaphor for his re-election campaign against Mitt Romney. We're the Miami Heat, and Romney is Jeremy Lynn, Obama reportedly told aides. The Incredible Streak Within a Streak In the middle of the 2012-2013 season, the Heat won 27 consecutive games, the second longest streak in NBA history. But lost within that streak was perhaps the hottest regular season streak James has ever been on. During his time in Miami, sharing the ball with stars Wade and Chris Bosh, James wasn't able to get the volume of shots he'd gotten before. So he became more focused on efficiency, making sure the shots he got counted. He hunted cleaner looks, devoted himself to three-point shooting for the first time, and learned where on the floor he should be positioned to maximize his chances. The result was a soaring shooting percentage, which hit a whopping 57% in 2012-13. During the long win streak that season, James had six consecutive games shooting better than 60% and scoring more than 30 points. During the core of that run, he went 31-41 of shooting over three games. His streak ended in Oklahoma City in a rematch of the previous season's finals when James shot only 14 of 24, 58%, and scored 39 points in an incredible duel with Kevin Durant, who scored 40 points. The Heat won by 10. The following season, James had a streak during which he shot 67% or better in five straight games and averaged 37.4 points. It culminated in his career-best 61-point performance against the Charlotte Bobcats, a night he shot 22 of 33 from the field and 8 of 10 from three-point range. When 25,000 fans came to watch LeBron speak, James once had more than 25,000 fans show up just to watch him give a speech. In August 2014, the city of Akron wanted to welcome James back home, so it essentially threw a giant rally at the University of Akron's football stadium, which was nearly at capacity, including thousands of seats on the field. Beforehand, James held a news conference where he nonchalantly announced the Cavs had finished a trade for Kevin Love. The move had been reported, but wasn't yet official until James started openly talking about his new teammate. James didn't come out to the field until just before dusk, making a slow circle like a boxer coming to the ring as he embraced fans. As he was on the circuit, Skylar Gray appeared on the stage and sang her song, Coming Home, which had become the anthem of James's choice to re-sign with the Cavs. After honoring students supported by his foundation, James waited for the sun to go down before declaring, I'm back, and dropping the mic. A surprise fireworks display then started over the stadium. Specialized shoes lead to special connection. Aaron Miller, who has a rare form of cerebral palsy called spastic hemiplegia that stems from a severe stroke he suffered at birth, was being honored by the Celtics during a timeout in a December 2015 game against the Cavaliers. 
James looked up at the video board to see the story of how Miller overcame his health hurdles to win MVP in a local basketball tournament associated with the Special Olympics. James then noticed the teenager's footwear. Miller was wearing a specialized version of LeBron's shoes, designed to be easier to put on and take off, with children with disabilities in mind. I just saw him with my shoes on and picked him out, James said. I was just... It was kind of fate. James walked over to Miller and his family, who were seated courtside, placed his hand on the back of Miller's head, and acknowledged his presence, with thousands of Celtics fans all fixing their gaze upon the look of pure joy on Miller's face. I felt amazing because I was that kid that sat in the shadows behind everyone, and I was really shy. But when LeBron noticed me, and when I got my award, I just felt like I gained a lot of oomph and notoriety, Miller says now, looking back at the experience. I just felt important, like I'm important to LeBron, and that he recognized how amazing I am and how I inspire him. That was really cool. James later gave Miller his game-worn sneakers and posted a photo of the moment they met on his Instagram account, where the image has garnered nearly 400,000 likes. King James wrote on his Instagram post, Love you, kid. Continue to beat the odds. Continue being an inspiration to us all. And continue to hashtag strive for greatness. Miller, who has dealt with paralysis in the right side of his body, blurred vision, and limited brain functionality, will graduate high school in June and enroll in LaSalle College in Newton, Massachusetts in the fall, where he plans to study sports management and help out the basketball team. He still has the inspirational message James wrote on Instagram memorized, but now has his own message he hopes will inspire James. Good luck and never give up, Miller said. Tell him... You're an inspiration to me, and I have followed you since you honored me. I look at the sneakers that he gave me every day to give me motivation throughout the day. And he's just a really kind person, and every time I watch him, it makes me happy. So, something like that. Just say, like, thank you for everything. He's an inspiration, and he changed my life. Yeah, he changed my life, like, forever. Raw Emotion After an Emotional Loss the Cavs had just lost to the Golden State Warriors on their home floor to fall down 3-1 in the 2016 NBA Finals. No team in NBA history had ever come back from that type of deficit with a championship on the line, and Cleveland would need to make that comeback against a Warriors team that won a record 73 games in the regular season. We had a chance to win that game four at home, and we let it slip away. James said of a game the Cavs led by eight in the third quarter, but ended up losing by 11. We let Steph and Clay get loose, and we let it slip away. Flipping through the channels with his wife, Savannah, after one of the most disheartening losses of his career, James's attention was grabbed by Eddie Murphy's 1987 comedy special, Eddie Murphy Raw. With Murphy cracking his solemn spirit, James whipped out his phone to send a directive to his teammates after he and Savannah were finished laughing our ass off. As hard as it was, man, I knew how I felt, so I can only imagine how my teammates felt at that moment, James said. And, S, it was like 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning. I just felt the need before we got on this plane to go out there to send them a text message and just let them know that, listen, whatever y'all gotta do, however y'all feeling, it's cool. Feel as essy, feel as bad as you want to, but leave it here. Leave it here and don't bring it on that plane because we got work to do. And if y'all trust me as y'all leader and y'all feel that, then I'll make sure we come back home for a game six. The rest 
Cleveland's first title in 52 years, is history. But it might not have happened without an assist from Eddie Murphy. It just happened to be on, James said. It's one of those movies, one of those stand-up shows that if it's on, you stop and you watch it. And it just happened to effing be on at that point in time. It was like, it was the perfect timing. Joining me now is ESPN senior writer Dave McMiniman coming to us from the NBA Finals currently in Cleveland. Dave, welcome. Hey, what's up, Mike? Thank you for making the time. (laughs) Of course, anytime. I'm glad to be able to talk about these stories with LeBron. So, yeah, I was wondering, like, at what point are you going to make? Is this another LeBron thing? Come on. Enough. <laughs> well, you know what? I think that was why this was a challenge to write, uh, because the assignment coming from editors Adam Reisinger and Christina Daglas was, hey, LeBron's having this fantastic season 15 years in. This is pretty threadbare ground we've walked over this story time and time again trying to put some context into the type of career lebron's had uh, all of the growth and development he's had that led to this great run and and now he is putting himself in the conversation as if not the greatest player of all time certainly uh, among a handful of guys who could hold that mantle what can you tell us about it we don't know yet (laughs) and so over the course of a about two months, I'd say, uh, Brian Windhorst and I huddled together, had a couple phone calls, talked to people we knew that have been around LeBron's career for a long time, trying to polish up a couple nuggets that not everybody may have heard about before. So getting into some of those, uh, the stories you mentioned, the 13 moments, um, one of them, you know, when he made his, uh, when he was doing summer league right after he got, not long after he got drafted, and the hysteria around him, it seemed that, um, you know, he was, I know while he didn't go to college, it seemed that being a 21st century prep star and the way you sort of live on the internet and live in the limelight almost immediately and more so today with social media, it seems that that prepared him more for the NBA than almost the competition he faced. Yeah. And ESPN was part of that. Obviously we aired, some of his games at St. Vincent St. Mary on, you know, our air. And we, you know, we had Dick Vitale and, and Jay Billis there uh, treating it like a big time college game, uh, the same type of production value. Uh, but it's a, it's a kid, you know, who wasn't even 17 years old yet. And from that moment though, you know, talking to LeBron about his first summer league, talking to Tad Carper, the longtime communications director for the Cavs, he didn't flinch. Like when he was faced with the hoopla and the hysteria and all of the attention that came from the very start of his NBA career, mm-hmm. he might as well have been Kobe Bryant and the hysteria was Matt Barnes trying to fake an inbound pass right in his face. It, right. it didn't face him one bit. And I mean, we're talking about this is like extra. I mean, this is him down in Orlando Summer League driving into the arena in an SUV. Mind you, security's come a long way because the, the Cavs took an SUV from the team hotel that Darius Miles was actually driving. Like, this would never <laughs> occur today. Darius nope. Miles is driving the SUV. LeBron's in it. And teams and teams of fans and scalpers are knocking on the windows 
asking them if they have tickets for sale, not knowing that LeBron's actually in the car. Um, <laughs> and that was one of two summer leagues that the, the Cavs played in, in that year. They go up to Boston. They had to use a different gym for the Shaw Summer League than they had been accustomed to because there's so much fan interest. Mm-hmm. And guys are literally hanging from the side baskets to get a, a view during these games. And again, an interesting parking lot situation. There was people basically, uh, they, they, you know, they roped off the lot early morning. Uh, because they had to find extra parking for the team vehicles. Mm-hmm. And people, uh, you know, they had cleared out the lot, or so they had thought security had. People were actually sleeping or laying down under their cars. And when <laughs> the Cavs bust, now they graduated from SUVs to a bus by the time it went from Orlando to Boston, realizing uh, Smart. You know, th- that, that security situation, people rolled out under their cars, and they had things for LeBron to sign. They had th- their cameras ready, tried to take pictures with him. Uh, and who knows how long they were waiting out there for that opportunity. Uh, but again, uh, Le- Le- LeBron told me that dating back to when he was in high school and they'd go on these tournaments, he'd be staying in, in you know, a random holiday inn wherever the, the, the tournament was, you know, whatever the team could afford rooms for, for the St. Vincent Mary's team. And the same thing would happen there. You know, he's a teenager and, and people are knocking on his hotel door asking for autographs. So it, it never seemed to intimidate him this life i mean and it gets back to the whole chosen one tattoo uh mm-hmm. he seems to have the feeling that fate's been on his side and so he's just following the path that's in front of him it also seems that uh the the perspective bring that perspective to the league it also helped him know what was and wasn't important to the the one of the other stories you pulled uh you mentioned about how he had lunch with moses malone and how here is LeBron James, all of, you know, a rookie just out of high school. But yet, to your point of how in demand he has been for how long, he recognized, wow, this guy's taking time out of his schedule. Where like most 18 year olds, you know, their schedule, you know, is like, I'm, I'm on social media. I'm playing a video game. I'm playing basketball repeat. And to know like that he has a schedule and commitments. And even though he was at 17 or 18. So it was interesting to see that, uh, the weight that he gave that because he understood like the precious commodity that all of us have, whether it's you, me or LeBron James is we only have that 24 hours in a day and for anyone to give part of it, how important that is. So based on that, have you, uh, in your reporting of LeBron, like does he sort of pay it forward? Like, does he sort of take a rookie out and take them under his wing a little bit when they come in? Yeah. He's taking a completely different approach than the established greats or, or established players took with him when he entered into the league. Like he felt a great degree of shade and jealousy. I mean, when he signed a $90 million Nike contract with actually, you know, there's reports of actually being worth more of that because of the mm-hmm. signing bonus, but at least a $90 million Nike contract before he even played a game, he, you know, the response from a, a lot of people already in the game or former players was who's this kid think he is. And rather than people like Moses Malone trying to, bring them under his wing, he got the cold shoulder for the most part. Yeah. You know, Moses Malone and Jerry West are, are two of like the rare greats who seem to embrace him from the start. He did not want to have that same type of reputation. Uh, he wants to grow the game. And so from the LeBron James Skills Academy, which he has every summer, where he kind of has his path intersect with most of 
the young prep players who come up through the high school ranks and end up making mm-hmm. to the NBA to, you know, just having kind of an open door policy. And we've seen, you know, J.R. Smith way before he was a Cav worked out in the summer with LeBron James. Kevin Durant way before he was a finals opponent of LeBron worked out in the summer with LeBron James. And, you know, there is a list that is way longer than just, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, well, some of this is, you know, their clutch clients. You know, mm-hmm. he started his own agency, Rich, Rich Paul. There is some of that. But way before clutch existed, he had the same open-door policy. And, uh, you know, I've seen it. You know, the way he sought out just about every single significant player on the Boston Celtics roster at the end of Game 7 of the Eastern Conference uh, Finals this year, and, you know, several of them being young and impressionable players like Terry mm-hmm. Rozier and Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, he wants his reputation and, and not just caring about his image, but he caring about the game-wise he doesn't want to be that guy who is a hypocrite and says, man, I hated the way guys treated me when I came to the league. I'm going to make them go through that same type of thing. Right. Like uh, he wants to, you know, try to make up for what people did to him in the past. Well, it's interesting you said because um, and also one of your stories about talking about how, you know, you spent a lot of time talking to Jason Tatum after the game seven loss. And one of the, um, the stories you mentioned how when he went to go see his alma mater from high school and uh, he went and found the guy, uh, Juwan Staten, from the other team to talk to him about what it's like to lose. And yeah, now, I think that was, yeah. I'm just saying, it just seems that in every situation he's sort of like, he does an amazing job like sort of seeing his own story in his past and identifying it when he can. And that. sort of passing on the knowledge. I think that story in particular was in particular was about starting to find out the weight of his influence, the weight of his voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of the, well, why do I have to do something like that versus why not do something like that and, right. and create a lasting impression on someone who's otherwise going to be a stranger. And it, it's, takes uh you know a great presence of mind it takes some self-awareness it also takes the effort and the patience to to find those moments i mean he could have left the gym mm-hmm. when that game was over it's a high school game right what does he have to be doing messing with the the team that lost but right. you know he he won i think he trusts his value uh, or in terms of value system when he watches a basketball game and, and you know, basketball is basketball to him. He spent several weeks in the summer of 2017 after the Cavs lost to the finals traveling the country with his son's AAU teams, mm-hmm. getting reinvigorated in terms of his love for the game by seeing these kids, you know, only care about wins and losses and how they play with their teammates versus endorsement deals and et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, the same interest he had in the AAU game of his kid is the same interest he brought to a kid that he didn't know from Adam playing against his alma mater. And, um, you know, there's another story we have in the collection about a Special Olympian that was mm-hmm. at a Cavs-Celtics game a couple of years ago. We're talking about two and a half years ago now. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he noticed him being honored on the court. You know, the Celtics do a, a great job with a – Every home game, I think it's called Heroes Among Us, where they honor someone from the community for something that they've done that's extraordinary. 
mm-hmm. and, and LeBron decided to approach him and um, you know grab grab the kid Aaron Miller from the by the back of the head mm-hmm. uh, almost to to say I, I I get you I acknowledge you um, and I spoke to Aaron some two and a half years later um, you know and, and he's dealt with his own you know half paralysis uh, with his body and, and some uh, you know um, Down syndrome um, symptoms his whole life. He told me, you know, everything changed from the day I met LeBron James. LeBron gave me his sneakers. I look at those sneakers on my mantle every day. Uh, I try to go by his mantra of strive for greatness. And now Aaron's going to college. He's going to work with the basketball team uh, at a local college near the city of Boston. And, you know, that was in the middle of a game against an Eastern Conference rival where LeBron had the presence of mind to recognize that the only thing that matters is not the X's and O's and the score of the Cavs versus Celtics. It's how can I make a greater impact here by, you know, telling this, this kid that, yeah, you know, you have 20,000 fans cheering for you, but I'm cheering for you too. And, um, you know, when you see stuff like that and you're able to check back in with it literally years later mm-hmm. and see that it still carries weight and still carries value, you start to recognize that the entirety of LeBron James's existence that we consume as sports fans is really just the tip of the iceberg. Um, there's so much more than what's outside the lines. And it's just uh, to your point about earlier with uh, the high school game and no, I could leave the gym, not something I have to do, but I should do. I also thought, so what I didn't, I educated myself on that I was not aware of is one of the things you point out in that story that you mentioned is, um, how this, uh, how this special Olympian, how he had he, LeBron, like he had on shoes that are made like to be easy to take on and off if mm-hmm. you do have a disability. Where if you think about it, I mean, when you think about like the different, like when they're talking about from a pure business perspective of like the size of the population, I'm sure like that is a market that with the market LeBron James already reaches that a lot of people would probably say, you know what, you don't need to waste your time on that. Mm-hmm. But it's but it's like it's part of his nature to actually make time for that. And that was a bit of serendipity. Uh, you know, LeBron told me sometimes I just look into the crowd and I catch someone's eye, and you know that's going to be the kid that I give my arm sleeve to or give my wristband to after the game. And the fact that Aaron Miller is wearing this specialized sneaker that literally LeBron and his team developed, so children who have problems tying their own shoes. It's basically a shoe that almost comes into two parts and then you mm-hmm. zip it up and it's a lot easy a lot easier for someone to take on and off without the help of someone if if they have some sort of palsy. Right. It's uh, empowering. It, it's incredible. It, it's incredible. Um and, and that was, you know, again speaks to kind of this this kind of fate uh theme that uh seems to be a through uh thread in LeBron's life. And Go in one of the other um, stories you mentioned going forward about how at one point, like LeBron James hinting that maybe the whole league should retire number twenty three for Michael Jordan and like his reverence for Michael Jordan, but it's also part of our our chronic condition of being NBA fans is that we need to compare everyone to everyone, especially LeBron James to Michael Jordan. But the theme I keep getting back to whenever I this conversation was up for me. Is that you forget about the the numbers, the the titles, 
like average, whatever you want to do. But but just but ways what we've been talking about, Dave, with like the psychology and the mental approach of it all, where I guess the best way to put it is I'm not sure how Michael Jordan would have fared in a world where not only was everyone looking for you, but everyone is looking for you and is carrying a portable movie studio in the palm of their hand and a smartphone. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's stories to this day that are known about Jordan that through the, I guess, the glowing um, vagueness of time have become legendary. Yes. But in the moment, you know, the flu game <laughs> where, you know, he was in Park City the night before, you know, gambling and carousing around. Right. How would that be viewed in today's media? You know, how would something like when he's playing the Knicks in the playoffs and he's cited or, 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 or spotted, I should say, down in Atlantic City the night before a playoff game, how would that fly? in today's media. And so LeBron's had a whole nother set of rules to abide by, to live by. Mm-hmm. And even in that, you know, his greatest discretion would be the decision uh, the, the, that pe- most people will cite. And that raised almost $3 million for charity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it, it, his worst moment is, is be- far better than a, a lot of players best. And it seems, but through all this, like you're talking about, you know, with the young players and the stuff that he used to do, like with bikeathons and and like the commitment. Like if you go to the LeBron James Family Foundation page, there's like a lot of events and a lot of things going on. Now, where does the where does the motivation to to do all this come from? I mean, like he you know he didn't and how he grew up. Like where does he maintain the drive and almost the the feeling of responsibility to do all this where he could. I guess my point is he could do far, far less and still be doing way more than most elite athletes, let alone people who are in the conversation of the greatest ever. Yeah, I mean, he hasn't – that's a great question, Mike. He hasn't completely revealed the total aha moment for when he became so much involved in the LeBron James Family Foundation. There are a couple things that are cited. Uh, One, the way the Heat as a team when LeBron was on it responded to the Trayvon Martin tragedy, where mm-hmm. they decided to all put on their team hoodie and pose for a photo with their heads down as a sign of solidarity that, hey, you know, we're just like him. That could have been us. That was uh, unfairly targeted um, by a neighborhood watch person and, and considered a threat when we're just walking around at night wearing a hoodie. Um, mm-hmm. That's one moment. And then the fact that he has really decided to keep his approach uh, kind of like at a, at a grassroots level where um, almost a pay it forward type of ethos behind it, where mm-hmm. I'm going to take care of the place that takes care of me and has taken, has taken care of me for a long time in Akron, Ohio. And I'm going to give all these children who enter into my program, um, you know, around sixth grade and, and go all the way through high school the chance then to get a free college education. And then hopefully they'll be able to set themselves up to live comfortable lives with gainful employment and build their own families. And they'll want to do the same thing for people in their community that I'm doing for them growing up. And uh, it's, it's, you you could say that it's a little idealistic, um, but he truly believes it. Uh, You know, he makes sure he nourishes it through, incentive programs for the children who do do well in in his program in terms of 
uniforms and sporting equipment and trips to Cedar Point Amusement Park in Sandusky, mm-hmm. Ohio, and through things like, you know, he does automated voicemail for people, automated emails, but also he'll do a random surprise call up, you know, a kid, you know, or mm-hmm. write a handwritten letter to a kid. Um, all those things, he gets to feel the direct impact of it. And I, I think that fuels him to continue to do it because it touches him to see uh, what his efforts are capable of creating out there in the world in terms of a positive mm-hmm. force. Uh, but beyond that, um, he's, I think he feels kind of fortunate that he had a, a place like Akron, Ohio, uh, never turn its back on him, right. even when a lot, a lot of the world did. Mm-hmm. And um, he's chosen to you know, pay that back. So another thing, going to the court for a minute, uh, when you, one of the things you, when you mentioned the story about, uh, Jeremy Lynn and stopping Lynn's sanity back in 2012, how motivated, uh, does LeBron get every year to like stop the new hot kid in town? Like, you know, you see in all the history of sports, like, oh yeah, wait until this kid's great, but wait until he has to face so and so. Like, does that motivate him or is it like sort of nonsense? Like, well, at the end of the day, I don't care what you do as long as we win. It does motivate him. He doesn't want to feed into it. And this is funny. This is actually one of the stories that Brian and I had tossed about, uh, maybe adding to it. But it seemed almost too big for these vignettes. But mm-hmm. for well, the last several years, <laughs> yeah, for the last several years, it's become almost clockwork where if the opposing team has a young, bright star, mm-hmm. The, the, the media that follows that team will come into the Cavs locker room after the game and try to get LeBron for a quote. <laughs> and to, it, it's almost the, the validation, the kingmaker that he can be if, you know, hey, Miles Turner blocked you in this game. What do you have to say about Miles Turner? Uh, you know, Joel Embiid had a nice defensive uh, play against you. What do you have to say about Joel Embiid? And on and on and on. Uh, and, you know, for a while his, his line was, hey, listen, I'm not a GM. And um, you know, it's not really my job to to you know comment on opposing players, and but that goes a, a little bit against what we were talking about earlier, where you want to embrace the new generation and um, kind of pay it forward in the game. And so I, he's loosened that stance a little bit over the last mm-hmm. year or so, and and you've seen him, you know, one get up to play a kid like Donovan Mitchell, uh, but even after you know, the Jazz beat the the Cavs in Utah this year, rather than be salty about it, he still was magnanimous and took a moment to recognize just how special uh, Mitchell could end up being. Um, And of course there's the business side, as I mentioned before, you know, Ben Simmons is with clutch sports and Mm -hmm. uh, they look to identify players that LeBron can help out uh, achieve that next level. What he calls the blueprint. Um, He tried to give it to Kyrie Irving, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he tried to tried his darndest to have Kyrie Irving be on his kind of program uh, for what he believes is the necessary steps to reach ultimate success and stardom in this league. But but Kyrie kind of marched to uh, the beat of a different drummer. Yeah, he took but, he took his talents to North Station. <laughs> yes, he did. Yes, he did. But that that's that's a that's a part of um, LeBron's playbook at this point, where. Uh, he yes, he gets excited to play against these players and certainly reassert his dominance against them. I think you saw that in particular in the Boston series 
you know, mm-hmm. when Jason Tatum dunked on him in game seven and then kind of gave him a chest bump on the way yeah. back up the court. Yeah. That ruffled LeBron's feathers. Believe me, it did. And yeah, if I was out there, I would, have like, I would have been like, bro, I wouldn't have done that. <laughs> yeah. If he didn't already have enough motivation at that point in the game, which he yeah. had surely. You should have dumped, added. turned around, and if you were going to bump into him, gone, oh, excuse me, sir, and then gotten yeah, out yeah, of Yeah, my way. bad. My bad. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, those challenges, I think, keep him fresh in the game as well. I mean, he's been doing this 15 years. Think about all the bus rides, all the ankle tapings, all the ice baths, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Yet he still loves it. And I think part of that is that it's there's a constant challenge now against Father Time, and Father Time is personified by this young wave of players. And, what, and one of the uh, the – the 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 final vignette I believe when you, you talk about how when they went down three one to the Warriors in 2016 and they were pretty down and then they just happened to you know were watching Eddie Murphy's Raw and next thing you know they were everyone was just really laughing they thought it was funny and it seems that with all of this that we've been talking about with talking to the high school kid about like man I lost my junior in high school and it was a big deal for me you know that was like a huge part of their documentary and talking about helping rookies or rejuvenating himself with his son's AAU team, all of that, it just seems that was the one that, even though not just because it was the last one, that really stuck out for me because it seems that his life and career are like LeBron's little version of the poster, you know, everything I needed to learn I learned in kindergarten. Where for LeBron, (laughs) it seems like it's, uh, you know, from back in junior high school and high school on, where it's, if I'm not having fun doing this with my friends, then what am I doing? Yeah. Yeah, what a moment that was. I mean, the most crushing loss of a professional career up to that point because you have the rematch against the Warriors. You yeah. are healthy. You're coming back home, and, and you really believe, you know, in that Cavs locker room, mm-hmm. I covered that team on a daily basis. They believed they were the best team in the league despite the Warriors winning 73 games that season. And you go home, and it's 3 in the morning, and you can't sleep, and you're sitting on the couch with your wife and flipping the channels. And here comes Eddie Murphy in a ridiculous purple leather jumpsuit. Right. Making me laugh. And it, you know, resets something in him. And he takes out his phone, goes to the group text, and lets everyone on that thread know that, hey, you know, yeah, that the tonight sucked. And you're going to be upset about it. And you're going to wallow in it. And that's fine. But when I see you all at the airport tomorrow to step onto that plane, we got a job to do. And our season is not over. And, you know, again, a lot of these stories also speak to his mental toughness. And mm-hmm. he's been through so much. He's lived 30 lifetimes in his 33 years. Uh, more life experience than any of us would ever probably dream about uh, having or probably ever any of us would want to have. You know, it's, right. it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. And yeah, careful what you ask me. You just him, might get it. Yeah. But you know what? It allows him to stare in the face of these situations and not blink and be able to process them and stay level-headed and still find excitement in the challenge. And, you know, that's why when you look at him in the finals now for a straight year and ninth time in his 15 years in the career and playing a juggernaut once again, do you see him you know, licking his wounds after falling down 0-2 to the Warriors? No. <laughs> you see him saying, how can I figure this thing out? Yeah, and, I bet you J.R. You know, Smith isn't on the group text, though. <laughs> no, never. Never. Let's not <laughs> let's not go there. But, hey, man, that's uh, 
you know, if you figure it out with J.R. Smith against this team, all the, <laughs> that only makes this story that much better. Exactly. Do you think, though, at the end of the day, with all of this, the charity, like what he does off the court, which is what I've framed this as because it's how important it is more than anything, at the end of the day, do you think LeBron himself cares about everyone's interpretation of his legacy? Or could is he like, I did my best, how would it stand? He does care. He cares deeply. The hard part is that he's able he's able to separate himself from it. Uh, he recognizes that there's always going to be misinformed people that have incredibly rigid thoughts on who he is and what he's about, and they'll never know. And you know, the, the, one of the quotes he also often cites is Teddy Roosevelt, a part of his speech uh the man in the arena where basically saying unless you've done this yourself you have absolutely no idea Mm. and so you know what i can dismiss your thoughts because you don't know what you're talking about but he also knows that he wants to have everything he's been working for validated and it won't just be validated by him it's going to be validated by the court of public opinion and Mm -hmm. i think that's why you know he indulges people like myself and Brian and other journalists that he's learned to trust over the years with his time, because if he believes that we get it and we understand what he's about and understand what he's trying to accomplish here, uh, you know, he under, he sees the value in us telling his story. Well, as we've learned through the years with LeBron, even though the record being what it is right now in the finals, the story with LeBron is never over until it's really over. So, Dave, thank you so much for your time, and we look forward to reading more of your unbelievable NBA Finals coverage. Thanks, Mike. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again, and we'll be back soon with more Double Truck Stories podcasts.